from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing an interview with Jeff Haji Bande. In high school, Jeff was reborn as a Christian. When he went off to college, he became the worship leader for the on-campus Christian fellowship. Jeff tells a story on how he ran into the Baha'i faith while at college. I started the interview by asking Jeff where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. I lived in a very, very Protestant Christian home. My parents were Protestant. And ever since uh, fifth grade, I was in parochial high sc- uh, middle school and high school. And I was confirmed when I was 13 in the Protestant church. Mm. So I had a very, very Christian, a very strong Christian foundation for my upbringing. What denomination of Christianity was your family? When I was six weeks old, I was um, baptized into the Presbyterian church, as my father was a Presbyterian. My mom well, was a Sunday school teacher, as a matter of fact, and always reiterated the importance of being a Christian, the importance of Christmas, not as a materialistic holiday, mm. but as something we're recognizing the birth of Christ, and as Easter, not as a holiday that we're receiving a whole lot of candy or mm. these, these kind of things, but we're recognizing the resurrection of Christ and the importance of these things and mm. the bearing that this, all of this has on our life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a very, very essential thing to being a part of my family. The Christian side of it was something that was kind of like personal, mm-hmm. but the lifestyle, the purity of character, having a good heart, exercising the teachings of Christ towards other people, that was something very important, Like mm-hmm. especially reflected in my mom, because, I mean, she was always participating in volunteering things. My high school had a thrift store. She was always helping other people, participating in service opportunities. Uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily associate it with like Bible thumping, you know, not at all like that. When you're that young, at least in my in my experience, mm-hmm. it was just a very normal part of life that your mm-hmm. parents would bring you to church, you'd go to Sunday school, draw some pictures of Noah and sing some songs and then and so it just becomes a very normal thing. But that can also be a very unfortunate thing at the same time. It can mm-hmm. be as normal as waking up and eating breakfast or something, you mm-hmm. know. Actually, when I was uh, coming towards the end of my junior year in high school, I remember, I even remember the, the instant I was lying in my bed, and for some reason I had a Bible next to it, and I rolled over and picked it up and started reading. I just opened it, and something I had never done before, spontaneously on my own. You know, from that day forward, it just became a snowball effect that I began Mm -hmm. to develop like a passion, you know, like a relationship with Christianity, a relationship with Christ. And it began to have a profound effect on me. I mean, I stopped listening to certain kinds of music completely. I was like complete abstinence from music and all these kind of things. And yeah, it was about 17, 18 that 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 happened. 
and it was at that point that I reflected upon my baptism because Christ says, you know, repent and be baptized. Mm-hmm. And I reflected on my baptism that I was six weeks old and I didn't really make a decision to be baptized, you know? And so I decided I want to be baptized under my own volition, under, under my choice. And at this point, I was going to a non-denominational Christian church. Was this on your own accord, or was this because... It was, it was me. This, you know, I just decided... This was like after I began to read the Bible on my own. Mm-hmm. I decided to go to like a, a church that wasn't so deeply ingrained in like tradition. And that didn't say, like, I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm... This kind of segregation that happens. Because I was reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1... You know, the very first thing that Paul talks about is he exhorts the Christians not to be divided, not to say, I follow Paul, or I follow Peter, or I follow Jesus, or I follow James, because the body of Christ is one, the body of Christ is united. And so I was asking, I was like, but why are there 20,000, according to Wikipedia and encyclopedias, there's like several thousand sects and denominations of Christianity, But it says very clearly, not in my understanding, not to do this. I wanted to go to something that didn't, that kind of just put all that aside. And Mm -hmm. so let's just praise God, you know, read the Bible and live the life. And so I found this church and they were also had regular baptizing. And I decided that's something I wanted to do. And so on, actually five years ago today, because it was the 14th, my brother's birthday, which is today that I got, I was baptized I don't want to say a second time, but like mm-hmm. the baptism that I chose, that I took ownership over, was five years ago today. I was definitely very gung-ho mm-hmm. about it, and to the point that I guess it could have been kind of annoying, to the point where I guess I would have considered myself slightly evangelical, and definitely invading people's comfort zones and saying, you know, why, why aren't you mm-hmm. reading the, you know, <laughs> so. So you got baptized? Yeah, I was baptized. I just felt that as a, a, an important experience, and I was very happy with that. I was going to be going to college in like six months and living on my own. I just felt that was a very, like a cathartic experience. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of made my dad a little upset. I feel that he thought that I felt that my baptism as an infant wasn't important to him. And of course, it's not at all what it was. Um, it doesn't negate that. It's just something I wanted to take to make this action my own, you know, mm-hmm. take a conscious choice to do something of this importance. So my mom came. My mom was very happy. And my mom subsequently began going to this church quite regularly instead of the Presbyterian church, which was... Why was that? She she just kind of found, like, the same life that I found in it, the same vigor that attracted me, also attracted my mom and, you know, subsequently kept her there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like older traditions in um, like older Protestant churches, and there's to some people that can be kind of dry, and some people think it's great, you know. But to my mom and to me, you know, we wanted something that was more modern, you know, like contemporary worship and has like a band on stage. It's not like the band that draws you, but it's definitely something that has a power to it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's enjoyable to be a part of that. So after the baptism, my faith gradually kept developing as it was. I felt that was an important kind of benchmark to hit. Graduated high school the following, you know, that May. Mm-hmm. I was getting ready to go to college, and I kind of worried. I was like, man, there's a lot of distractions that one can be distracted by in college. For some reason, I guess I wasn't strong-minded enough to think that 
I could overcome these distractions. I was worried about my faith. I was like, oh man, am I going to be able to, to hold on? And it sounds kind of, kind of silly now reflecting on a thought like that. But when you're 18 and you, you know, the stereotypes about college and you wonder like, what is the power of these things? You know, is it going to draw me in? But it's funny, once I got there, like, I, I feel like... What college was this? I went to uh, the University of Nevada, Reno. It had a good honors program. I was in state, you know, it was, it was a good choice. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that far away from home. It was just upstate Nevada. But it was far enough away that you felt like you were on your own. A good 400 miles. That's mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. But I felt like God didn't even give me... He didn't give me more than a day to get distracted. Because I remember <laughs> on the first day that I moved in, somebody from one of the Christian fellowships... He would knock on my door and had like a cooler of sodas and you know said, "Hey, we're from this Christian fellowship and we want to invite you to uh, participate." So you started associating with them. Yeah, I started associating with uh, InterVarsity, was the Christian fellowship on campus. Mm-hmm. It's fairly large. I'd say at the time it was probably about two hundred people, two hundred fifty-ish. You know, and you're all young people, so you find that you fit in. All like-minded. You're all in college, to whether you're a freshman or a senior. It's a Christian atmosphere. Everybody was very warm-hearted and caring. A great place to be, a great alternative to other distractions in college. You know? mm-hmm. So my freshman year, I you know, was getting involved in university, found my home there, if you will, um, became involved in Bible. I had a Bible study like in my dorm room. My second semester of college, I began playing guitar for the worship band. So you've been a guitar player all your life? No, actually, I started like a year before college, decided, I played piano and French horn and things, I said, oh, I like guitar. My dad wanted me to play French horn, but I, you can't be in a band and play French horn, like a, a rock band play French horn, so I, of course I wanted to play guitar. Mm-hmm. So I was invited by the worship leader to play. I was like, okay. It was really cool because you get spent a lot of time with spiritual giants, like people that you look up to spiritually that are really humble, have really Christ-like hearts. And I was getting to spend a lot of time with these worship leaders and Bible study leaders and things. I don't even remember like what had spawned the question, but mm-hmm. he invited me and I accepted right. it. And our purpose is, it was never to put it on a performance. We were just like facilitating it, worshiping as a group. So the band members were pretty humble. Definitely, and I think as... Because yeah. as, as, that's a conflict for a performer to be humble at their craft right. as people are going crazy with the spirit of the music. Right, right. And I think that was definitely the role that the worship leader at the time had to kind of like mitigate that and kind of make sure, check his own heart, of course, and kind of like emphasize the importance of this is not... There's no show in this, there's no... None of that grandeur of any sort. So, you know, being with people who, in the face of that potential potential pride, you know, pushes that aside, you know, that's, that's mm. quite a beneficial experience. So, I mean, I was surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, as it's called, you mm-hmm. know. Kind of developed more and more over that summer. And then I remember at, we had this retreat at Catalina Island. You know, it's like a over spring break, and it's like a, you study, like, the, the Book of Mark intensively eight hours a day for a week, and it was... Just a wonderful experience. And I remember at that retreat, like on the last day, um, the worship leader asked me to be the worship leader next year. Though I could play guitar, I couldn't sing. I was, I was, so I was terrified at the idea of such an endeavor. 
But then upon reflecting, uh, you know, you know, everything that I've been telling you that it's not about the show, it's not about the grandeur or, you know, being in center stage. It was about service. It was about leading people in worship. And so keeping that in mind and making that the focal point of everything, you know, I accepted and said, okay. So I spent all summer practicing and trying to, you know, to the best of my ability, develop as a musician and so that my voice would be less distracting as a, as a word. No, mm-hmm. um, you know, just so I could, in the best capacity that I could, serve the ministry. Mm-hmm. And that was great. And, you know, the, the year started and we had about 250, almost 300 people in the fellowship. You know, we were engaged in Bible studies. My roommate and I, I was living in the dorms again, had a Bible study going on in, in our room. And I even remember the first week we always have, during new student orientation, a booth. So students, probably much in the situation that I was when I was a freshman, who are looking to be a part of an organization, know they have options. You know, there's fraternities, sports clubs, all sorts of stuff. And one such gentleman decided to come and say, hey, I'm interested in being a part of your fellowship. Tell me about it. You know, what are you guys about? We explained, you know, we have Bible studies and fellowship. We're Christian fellowship, you know. And he's like, oh, great. Okay, cool. His name was Jacob. I didn't realize the significance of that day until months and months later. Mm. There's, and there's something very interesting about Jacob, because I remember when I first met him, because you, you meet people every day or however often, and you'll forget that you've met them just by virtue of the fact that you meet lots of people. But something stuck about that, you know, and it wasn't because of subsequent events, but just something stuck. It had impressed me about his character, the manner in which he asked about, about our fellowship. And I was like, okay, you know. And so he started coming to the, our Bible studies. He knew the Bible very well, I have mm. to say, like very, very well. It had such a pure understanding of it and, and such a, a clear understanding because there's some, there's some tough issues in Christianity. People ask a lot of questions, hence there's so many denominations. And I felt like he would relay the, an answer to these things that made so much sense that a three-year-old could understand, like, the concept of the Trinity, for example, like that's been that's caused so many conflicts and problems in the church for hundreds of years, and he had an explanation, and it made so much sense. The fact that the Jews rejected Jesus, I don't think he, that he was expressing that people don't really give enough credit to that. That's such a significant thing because as as the nation of Israel, they were God's chosen people, you know, brought out of the hardship of Egypt by God. And they were promised a Messiah who would come, a divinic Messiah who would come and rescue them from the bondage of slavery under the Roman Empire and all these things. And when that person came, they were the first people to reject him and the first people to kill and crucify him. And, you know, you don't really think about that. The point is, like, hey, it's Christ. He died for our sins. It's for freedom that he set us free. He really emphasized it so strongly that we began to investigate it together. Um, And we looked at the prophecies concerning the the advent of the, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And they seem very clear-cut, that the Messiah would come with a sword, um, that every mountain shall be brought low and every valley shall be filled, that the moon will run red with blood and the stars will fall from the sky and the sun will no longer give its light, and Elijah would come, and all these things, and right? And I think, like, oh, yeah, but all these things happened, you know, of course, because he's Christ. And the disciples even asked Jesus these questions, like, we believe you, who you say you are, but tell us, you know, where, where is Elijah? Where, where does he fit into this picture? And the answer to that, well, Christ essentially says, 
if you're willing to accept it, know that John was Elijah. We're like, oh, okay. But we have to really, to, to wrap our minds around that is, is different because he wasn't literally Elijah. He right. came in fact, John the Baptist said he wasn't Elijah. Yeah. Yet he Jesus was, said he was John asked, the Baptist was Elijah. Right. John yeah. the Baptist said not only was he not Elijah, but he was not a prophet. He wasn't anything. Yeah. He right. was one who was coming to prepare the way for the Lord. Mm-hmm. So this Jacob fellow was not so much focusing on the fact that the Jews rejected Christ, but that the prophecies that were expected were very different from what one would expect a literal fulfillment right. to be. And the fact that Christians, without hesitation, accept these fulfillments of prophecies that if you look at literally, mm-hmm. really would never be fulfilled, yet Christians believe they were fulfilled when Jesus came in a, I guess, in a spiritual way. By describing it the way you did, you might get the sense that, well, Jacob is really sort of blaming the death of Christ on Jews. Oh, yeah, right. And and that's not what I'm hearing, but rather that Jacob is bringing up that there were all these prophecies Mm -hmm. of the return of the Messiah, and if you took them literally, every sane person would say, well... Jesus didn't fulfill them, yet all Christians accept mm-hmm. that Jesus indeed did fulfill them. And I guess that's what you're trying to Absolutely. say. Yeah. And the point of demonstrating all of these prophecies was to kind of show us that you have to look at these with a spiritual understanding. So the point of these Bible studies that Jacob and I would essentially be having, you know, just the two of us, or just him and some of his friends, would be... Not to demonstrate just the fact, not, not the, the fact that the Jews crucified Christ and missed Christ, but the purpose was why did the Jews miss and crucify Christ. And it was because Christ fulfilled all of these prophecies spoken of in the Old Testament by Ezekiel and Daniel and Moses. He fulfilled them not at all, in some cases in a literal sense, but almost almost absolutely in a spiritual sense, in a metaphorical sense. This is a, a language in the Bible that you're, you're not really trained to, to perceive it in this, in this way I mean, in most Christian upbringings, at least that I know of. And it's something you don't think about, but then he would draw out things. Like Christ says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And yeah, of course. But how does one eat of Christ's flesh, flesh and drink of his blood? And the actual understanding of this is, you know, you, you take of the teachings of Christ. He says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And it's, it's not at all, you're not eating Christ's flesh and blood, though the Greek in the Bible for flesh is sarks, which is the flesh means the flesh of an animal taken like off of the bone. So literally it's saying you must eat of my flesh, but obviously there's a spiritual meaning to this. You know, Christ kind of elaborated this. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out for better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven maimed than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Clearly, nobody on earth would have eyes anymore because we've all made the mistake of looking at things incorrectly or even adultery. You've heard that it was said that if you find your wife, I'm paraphrasing this, of course, if you find your wife unpleasing, you can write her a cert of divorce and you're divorced. But Christ said, under no circumstances is this permissible for any man who divorces his wife causes his wife to sin, you know, and to be an adulteress, because God deplores separation. 
So upping the ante of like the, the spiritual truth of the law of Moses. You know, Christ said, you don't believe in Moses because if you believed in him, you would believe in me because he spoke about me. Christ did not at all abrogate or crush the laws of Moses as, as was insisted by the Jewish priests, but he raised it to the next level, an even higher degree of purity in that it's the purity of one's heart, not just looking at a person Oh, the law of adultery. If you, if a man commits fornication with another woman, that's adultery. But Christ said, if you so much look at a woman lustfully, lustfully, you've committed adultery in a heart. If you so much hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. Like these are, these are deep spiritual truths, and it's through a spiritual eye that one perceives the beauty and the truth of these things from Christ. And so, likewise, we look at the prophecies concerning Christ that Elijah would come, that he would reign with a sword. And we find that these are spiritual realities. And once I'd begun to perceive that this is the case, it, puts, it put me in a very humbling position because I thought, hey, I'm expecting the coming of a Messiah myself. So how am I any different than the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish priests who are expecting these things? And it seems so clearly laid out. How am I any different than them? So then I was kind of, I felt like I was in this spiritual no man's land. I didn't, I just stopped. And this was as I was a worship leader in city, an active member participating in all these things. I just, everything kind of stopped. Even though this is just the prophecy part, there was still the other aspects of Christianity that shouldn't in any way put you in conflict with being a fellowship leader, right? Yeah, I mean, at least at least not as far as I felt because... I mean, our purpose on earth is to find, know, and love God. And I, I, that's uh, an experience that we have to, that people find. And though I had kind of felt my faith shaken at this point, it's not that I lost belief in Christ. I just felt that there's no way that I could say that I have all the answers or that even my understanding or even my leader's understanding of answers were, were uh, right. Okay. It sort of questioned your original concept of what the Bible said, and here you were preaching, so to speak, the word, and now you're wondering, did I have the right interpretation in the first place in right. preaching the word? And like, what is my heart's motive? You know, mm-hmm. Paul says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the attitudes and thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so I, I pondered upon this. Well, what is like, what is my motivation, my heart in believing in these things that I expect some like miracle or some great event to happen and like this is the bedrock upon which I believe or am I attracted to Christ purely because of of the beauty of Christ and because I love Christ it really challenged the motives of my heart I didn't know what to think at this time Mm. so this was all coming from this one fellow by the name of Jacob this one guy yeah. yeah and so it was it was quite interesting yeah and then one night I kind of felt that everything met its culmination because we'd been speaking so much about Jewish prophecy and Christian co- prophecy, you know, these similarities and delineating them. Oh, so he was, he was actually taking it another step further, comparing the prophecy of Jesus and how Christians interpret the prophecies to show that Jesus is the familiar right. prophecy, and then saying, okay, we, that's the way we need to look at the prophecies right. for his return. Right. And then Jacob was doing all of this. Well, he was, I mean, we were setting these things together, but these are conclusions I was reaching on my own. Ah, okay. You know, it was never, 
you know, explicitly said. Oh, not at all. And that was that was the interesting thing about it. Many of the prophecies regarding his first coming are the same for his second, such as the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, he'll slay people with a sword. They're very, very similar. He never essentially like proselytized. He's like, this is the way. He pointed these out, and they grabbed me. And I, this is all I wanted to talk about at this point. You know, I began spending a lot of time with him and discussing this. And then one night he said that he infer he kind of suggested rather he was never explicit about this that one could discover essentially the time of Christ's return, not necessarily the hour because Christ says no man knows the day or the hour, but but he suggested you can kind of figure out when like in a very general sense and he pointed to some prophecies in Daniel, he explained some historical context about the year this prophecy took place. And that earlier in the passage, there's a prophecy that suggests, that actually points to the year that Christ was crucified. This is in Daniel chapter 8. Excuse me, it's in Daniel chapter 7. And it comes by this methodology, you get 33 AD, which is the generally accepted year that Christ was crucified. And by using the same, the same methodology, you could acquire the time of a second coming. And so I, I tried and got... I was like, oh, like 4,000 something. Okay, this is, okay, that's a long time away. I'm cool. He's like, no, 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 no. Try again, try again. I think like an engineer, I was getting all these ridiculous answers and making it more complicated. But ultimately, it came out that there's a prophecy in Daniel that 2,300 days and nights will occur from this date, which Daniel happened, the prophecies happened in 457. And when you take 2,300 years from this, which is suggested as, as biblical time, a day is a year, according to many Christian scholars and all sorts of understandings, you come out to this date of 1844, and I'm like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. That was 161 years ago or something. And, and you don't remember anything <laughs> happening? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I wasn't here. Everybody else is still here. The kingdom of God is where, you know, yeah. so yeah. this isn't right. And he says, well, think about when is the the least probable time, the least probable date that you will ever look for something like this. And I thought it was like, in the past. I would never look in the past for something. And that sounds wonderfully metaphoric and all these things, but really, like, in the past, like, you would never look at something like that. And so at this moment, I had this date of 1844 floating around and not understanding what this means. But I was very drawn. And so this evening, it was about 8 o'clock in the evening, he essentially drops what I call the Baha'i bombshell on me, that this is indeed the date. You, you did this right. You're not wrong. And indeed, what was spoken of by Christ has been fulfilled and has been fulfilled in this time. And then he went on to describe the Bab and the Babi faith and how that subsequently led to the Baha'i faith. Now, for our listeners, maybe you could just give them a little background when you're saying the Bob and the Bobby faith. What, what, what that? Sure. Well, I'll give them the background as as as, as Jacob gave it to as you. As it was given to me. All right. It was that the Bob was a man from Iran who had essentially started a religion to prepare the way for one who's coming, who's greater than himself, him whom God shall make manifest, and who was the promised one of all ages, was the fulfillment of all these prophecies not only in Christianity, but every religion, in Islam and Judaism, 
who for years have been at ends with one another. So of course, in, the, in that by fulfilling these prophecies, he reconciles these, these things and explained that Baha'u'llah did fulfill these prophecies and Baha'u'llah is this return and Baha'u'llah did bring this spiritual kingdom. How do you process something like that? Well, I have a couple of questions. Yeah, One is, sure. uh, where did Islam fall into your paradigm before oh, Jacob dropped question. this bombshell on you? Well... As I went to a parochial high school whose prerogative was to, to teach Christianity as the only way. I mean, of course, we took religious diversity classes, but the diversity was you learned in a general sense of what other religions are and why they're wrong because you're in a Christian high school. Of course, this is correct. So here's why everything else is wrong. So you're like, oh, okay. And you're, you're kind of instilled, though not explicitly from your teachers and principals and people, you're kind of instilled with a contempt and kind of, I don't know, a hatred, you know, for other religions because they're not safe. That's strong, huh? Yeah, I would say because it's, it's, it's all based on ignorance and you don't necessarily understand why, but you know that they're violent and they, they cause all this trouble and the degradation and the moral fabric and all these, and you don't know why, but it's, it all sounds good. So, okay, I'm safe. So it all sounds good. So Jacob drops this bombshell that not only is it in the past, but it's in a Muslim country. Yeah, the, the initial followers of the Bab and Baha'u'llah were, um, all came from Muslim backgrounds. We're all very, most of them, you know, very ardent Muslims. You know, at this point, I kind of felt like a, a dying spider in that. I felt like everything collapsed, like, my, like on my back, but like just kind of like closing in. I remember sitting in the corner of this room. Like, because at first, you don't, how do you process this? You yeah, know? and I'm surprised that you would even be willing to process it. And that was the thing. I know now, the reason why I initially was, like, catching on to this was because of Jacob's character. There was something, some kind of fire in his heart that was very attractive, a, a purity that you knew that he spoke not, he wasn't speaking on his own accord, if you will, and that he was very sincere in his faith, and not only in his faith, in his friendships. And so this is, you know, this is a very attractive personality. And it was not only his character, that was kind of like what draws you in, but it was his understanding, because it made sense, it offered clarity, and it was fully agreeable, you know. I like to think that I have a mind of my own to think, and I, I couldn't find a reason to repute anything that he had been he had been explaining and sharing, but I wouldn't at all say pushing. You know, mm-hmm. I was finding I really liked his understanding and always you know how, you know what do you think about this, but the understanding about the return of Christ that was difficult. Yeah, and you know I, f- I found myself in this state. I was like trapped. I was confronted because I didn't have a reason not to believe it. All of these signs and prophecies I had begun to look at with a new eye, with a spiritual eye. And this understanding made sense, and it, it offered a clarity that could not be envisioned by traditional Christian understandings. And, but at the same time, like that's a pretty big deal, suggesting that such an event has, has come to pass. And so I remember sitting in the corner of this room, like rocking, kind of like tears in my eyes, and everything had been turned upside down. You know, I'm at this point, I'm a Christian. I was 19 and everything that I had come to know had essentially not had proven not to be true, 
but that there was something more that kind of the event that Christianity has been waiting for and is waiting for it in one sense has come to pass. That, that was the first thing I said after listening to this. It must have been like two hours that he was essentially teaching me the faith in the context that we had, had established. And the faith being the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith, yeah. The principles of the faith and the congruency between that and Christianity. So this is the first time you ever heard of I the words, no, the Bab, Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i faith. Oh, yeah. And, and the, these Arabic names, it's very, very foreign. On top of the fact that this event had happened, something very different. Even you know, what you would have anticipated or imagined. Right. And even putting uh, you know, literal under understanding aside of, okay, so maybe the moon turning to blood and the sun not giving its light. These are spiritual understandings. Okay, let's find out how this is true. Put in, in an Islamic context and these names that I don't know how to pronounce and these, and what? <laughs> you know, like, I even find myself now, like, as, as I'm, like, reliving this experience, like, at a loss for words because I, ha- I had nothing to say. Like, I, I was just blown this, like, sp- spiritual punch and, like, sitting back in the corner of the rink. And the first thing I said, I said, I don't not believe this. And that sounds silly. I was looking for a reason not to, but I didn't. So I don't not believe this made sense. Mm-hmm. But then, like, I, I kind of felt I have to challenge this. And then I said, Christ, when he talks about the, essentially his coming and prophets, he says, watch out for false prophets. For outwardly they are sheep, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Does one pick grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Likewise, essentially a prophet will yield good fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Thus by their fruits you will recognize them. So I pointed at him, and I said, how do I know that you aren't a wolf in sheep's clothing? And he essentially asked me, you know, well, you can investigate the claims that I bring to you. you find, essentially, like, you can find a reason and present it, and we'll talk about it. And I didn't have a reason. Like, the, the, the fruits of the Spirit, as Christ is pointing to, or as Paul delineates, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentle, gentleness, and self-control. And not only did Jacob exhibit these characteristics in a Christ-like fashion, but the Baha'i faith exhibited these characteristics. And now, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, he, he explained some aspects of the faith, like mm-hmm. the tenets of the faith, the unity of mankind, the unity of religion, which, though raised in the upbringing it was, I found that to be an, a wonderful idea. So the tenets of the Baha'i faith were a positive thing from what you yeah yeah but at the, but you know watch out for false prophets and so i wanted to really know what does this look like like how does this how is this supposed to pan out but i i didn't find a reason to not believe it at this time like i was enthralled disappointed happy upset all at the same time so i resolved i need to i need to investigate i need to understand this and so at four o'clock in the morning, when we finally parted ways, like that was just, I remember just like lying there awake and not even knowing like what to do. You mentioned the Bob and the first person to be told by the Bob that he was, he had this mission to revitalize the religion of God mm. in preparation for he whom God shall make manifest right. is the way he put it. 
And this is Mullah Hussein. Mullah Hussein. Yeah. And he was expecting, but when the Bob laid it on him, it was like, whoa, whoa, I'm not, I'm not quite ready for this, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, and in a lot of ways in the story of Mullah Hussein, that he kind of felt himself like enraptured by the fragrances of what the Bob was saying and chanting mm-hmm. and speaking. Mm-hmm. What Jacob was sharing with me about the faith, I kind of felt that same attraction, that same rapture. You know, though, you know, Mulu was saying was, he was experiencing this, but he was still expecting you know, right. something else. Right. I kind of felt that same... Dichotomy. Yeah, that, yeah, same dichotomy. Yeah. You know? But our relationship from that point began to be a series of questions. Like as soon as, you know, we'd, we would see each other every day, I think, at that point. And as soon as I, we would see one another, I wouldn't say hello or acknowledge him. I would ask a question. Because we can put these greetings and these things aside for now. Because if Christ has returned, that's kind of the biggest deal ever in, in my world. So once we figure this out, then I will say hello. For a period of about a month, like almost every day, I can't even remember a day that we didn't meet in this period. And there were just questions and questions and questions. I just kind of felt this solidarity, this, like everything was making sense and coming together. And like, I, I believe this, you know? Now, what were you sharing with your fellow fellowship members? Yes. I I should say that I was, um, still worship leader, leading worship on a weekly basis in our large group, participating in Bible studies. And, you know, people in the fellowship knew about Jacob and that we were friends and he was friends with everybody, you know. But he hadn't said this to anybody else other no. than to you. I had no idea that he was a member of the Baha'i faith until he had shared with me on that fateful evening. I didn't share this with anybody because I was still investigating it. So I need to, I need to sort things, figure things out for myself first. But I felt I still believe in Christ. Like That's the bedrock of my belief, my spirituality. So I, I was still doing the worship leading and the Bible studies and everything. But on, on the side, investigating the faith kind of became my prior, priority. It just kind of felt like my mind wasn't there in these Bible studies and worship leading because I was thinking about this other thing. Like It had to be solved. After this period of questions and answers and reading, um, he gave me a book from Baha'u'llah to read, the Kitab Agan, the Book of Certitude, which was written before Baha'u'llah declared who he was. And I think in the context of the writing, that was perfect for me because he explains the spiritual nature of the writings of God from the Quran and from the Bible how there's expectation and fulfillment and rejection. It's kind of like the series that always happens. He points to every prophet. Look at Noah, look at Moses, look at Abraham, everybody. And Baha'u'llah unwraps the secrets behind the the divine words and kind of makes their meanings obvious. And then once you you understand that, you can apply that to your understanding of the religious text. And then everything makes sense. And that's why like, I couldn't take my mind off of it because I was reading the Bible with a spiritual eye and being drawn closer to Christ. I was like, so there has to be something right about this. And then I just felt to my, myself like I came to the conclusion that to call myself a Christian, I have to be, I have to believe in Baha'u'llah. I have to, I have to be a Baha'i to call myself a Christian. That was the conviction I had reached in my heart because how could something bring me this, like such a love, attraction, and understanding to Christ be not Christ-like, be not of Christ. Like they, I couldn't separate them at the point. They had merged into this apex of faith that I wanted to be a part of. At the end of November of that year, this was in 2004, 
I had become a Baha'i. I had decided I want to be a Baha'i. You're still the fellowship leader? Oh, and the whole time I'm still fellowship leader. And I'm keeping this to myself, you know, this, this, this spiritual journey. Because if Jacob were to have come to me that first day at uh, New Student Orientation and said, Hello, I'm a Baha'i. Let me join your, your fellowship and let's rub heads. And, you know, I would immediately, as I was kind of, uh, you know, trained to do in high school, I would have just been like, that's nice. You can believe what you like, but you're wrong. I'm sorry. I'm very grateful for the fact that he spoke in a manner and, you know, chose to uh, share the faith with me without saying like the names and things. He showed me the beauty mm-hmm. Without showing, without revealing to me the name, and to some, and how long was that process before he finally sort of revealed himself? <laughs> I was conniving. No. <laughs> uh, it was it was like a good month or month and a half. Okay, like he, we had a really good relationship. But you were meeting once a week for this month and a half. You know, it just became more and more. Like it was just a process. Like no, I'm talking about when he first joined. Right, yeah. It just became like he came and I just found that we were going to hang out together. It was just one of those friendships. You just connected. It just kind of happened, you know. And I, I started going over. There was a, a few Baha'is in Reno, but only a few like college age. We started hanging out at their place, at their apartment, which kind of became like the focal point of like the, our stronghold in the, in the months to come. And even at the time when we would hang out, like all of these events essentially like unraveled in this in this apartment. And I didn't know they were Baha'is either. Like Jacob had a his purpose was to share the news of Baha'u'llah with the followers of Christ, which I think he went about it in, in a brilliant way, because for a lot of people who are Christian, the same barriers exist, in that it's difficult to kind of like think outside the box. Like it's it's easy to be comfortable. But by presenting the beauty of the faith without like the veils of glory, as Baha'u'llah calls it, you present the pure beauty, people can understand that and connect with it. And then everything kind of comes together from that, but purely because of that. I was not at all like upset, like, oh, why, why didn't you tell me this? Because it all made sense. It was, it, everything was so clear. I had no reason to be upset at that, you know? Mm-hmm. So once you became a Baha'i, what happened? So the semester was about to end in two weeks. Um, so I was about to go back home, and things were great. Like, it's thrilling to know the reality that your Lord has come. Essentially, like, to be baptized with fire, as Christ calls it. Like, it, to, to explain it, it's not. I can't encapsulate it into words. So, like, the semester with InterVarsity ended. I had another semester after that. Like, it was like a year position, if you will. I was going back to my, my Christian household back in Las Vegas, and then as soon as I was like out of, out of the sphere of, of Baha'i influence, of having Baha'i friends and things, I began to very seriously doubt what I had just done and thought, oh my God, what have I done? I found myself in spiritual no man's land again. I resolved, it's like, I need to figure this out on my own. Like, no Jacob, here's the New Testament, here's the Bible, I'm going to, to solve this. Because if it's not true, fine, I can put it all aside and continue. But if it is true, I, I really didn't want it to be true, quite frankly, because sure. like it would have been so not even to be easier because it would have been easier. True. But just like think of the people who haven't heard the message of Baha'u'llah and don't know about it. And it's like, if it's not true, big deal. It, it doesn't matter. 
And so I resolved over this four-week four period that I have off of school to focus my studies on using the New Testament and the, word, the Bible alone to kind of confront these claims. And during this, like, I couldn't sleep. Like, I was just almost like depressed in a lot of ways because this was just hard. Because every time I would I'd find something, like, ah, here it is. But then like, I realized this, the spiritual eye I had developed would, say, would resolve the understanding, you know. Like, watch out for false Christs and watch out for false prophets. Here are the signs. And then I'm like, okay, here it is. Here are the signs. And Baha'u'llah isn't these signs. He, isn't a, the, he doesn't embody these false characteristics. He embodies the purity and the sanctity and everything that's spoken that would be. And so that was disheartening. I was like, man. And so at the, towards the end of this uh, break, I've, I found myself, I had to basically submit to the will of God. I almost feel like I became a Muslim or something. <laughs> I just felt I had to, to give it's my... kind of like that. I mean, yeah. the, whole fa- the, whole, the, the whole thing that this came from out from the, a Middle Eastern country right. with Islamic roots, especially from your associates, certainly it looks like that. And, and, you know, I had rather openly been reading, like, the Kitabi gone around my family, and my mom was like, oh, what is this? Oh, you know, this is the some of the Baha'i writings. I was just trying to, to kind of, like, gloss over it. I was still figuring things out, you know. It's a hard decision to make. But at the end of this, like, I just, I submitted, and it was just so peaceful to realize, like, you know in your heart this is true. So push forward. And so from that point on, like, we, we went back to Reno, the semester began again and connected back, you know, connected back with Jacob and his brother actually came up from UNLV and started going to UNR. So we kind of had like this core group of Baha'is there. And so that was just very like empowering and kind of like refocused, like everything that we'd done in the first semester. At this point, I'd found myself as kind of like this firm Baha'i all of a sudden, but simultaneously I'm a worship leader in a Christian fellowship said, oh man, this is a pickle. But because, you know, one of the tenets of the Baha'i faith, as I had learned, was to maintain unity at, at all costs, I felt that it, the, the most wise decision at this point would be to finish my term as a worship leader once the semester's over, out of the spotlight, off stage. Fade into the distance. Yeah, you know, not, ne- not necessarily like disappear but step down and explain, you know, I felt, you know, an explanation probably would be due. It's, it's a position that can be passed on. No big deal. Because if I, if I would have been like, I'm a Baha'i, it just would have caused so much ruckus in the community, you know, something that's already prone to gossip. And, you know, you throw a bunch of college age kids, Christian or not, it's prone to things like gossip and backbiting. And, you know, so I wanted to avoid that situation. And even aside from not desiring confrontation, as a Baha'i, like, we understand that we're all pieces of one family worshiping one God. So in my mind, it was nothing different. It wasn't like I was worshiping, it's like them and me, or like I'm Christians and Baha'is. No, it's like we're our children of God and we're worshiping, you know. So nothing had really changed from that perspective, you know. So I just became, I had to think about like in, in, in a wise, but not deceitful way, you know, I wanted to be truthful, to kind of like keep it under wraps while living as a Baha'i and keeping that faith strong, but serving the community. And so Jacob had, after teaching me the faith, his goal was also to share this with other Christians. And I was very excited about this and was a part of this and endorsed it. And he developed a whole Bible study, like a whole workshop almost, 
that systematically delves in to the same things, you know, like the Jewish expectation, the spiritual fulfillment, the rejection, and then the expectation again. You, you see the cycle. And it was a, a very clear way. He developed a course that was very clear. And several people from the fellowship and from other Christian fellowships on campus as well spent a lot of time with everybody. Everybody knew who Jacob was, you know. We began having this Bible study, and um, over the course of the months, we had something, I want to say up to 30 to 40, maybe even 50 people, like, in and out, because he conducted them, like, at least one or two every night. You figure five or six people are there, you're talking, you know, a lot of people during the course of a week. And some, some people, you know, come and they find they're not really interested in this, you know, it doesn't catch them. That's cool, you know. But some people really stuck in the same way, and I was watching them. I kind of felt like I'm in Jacob's position, and I'm watching them and knowing like what they're going through and kind of what's to come and feeling very excited about it. Mm. So this last meeting we had, there was like 15 leaders from the fellowship and like five of us Baha'is, you know, our, our core group in our apartment and this like our, our stronghold. Very heated arguments, very emotionally charged about how this isn't right, you've been led astray. And, but I remember... I mean, it's difficult for me because I'd known these people for years. Jacob pretty much was basically kind of facilitating the discussion and keeping this composure. Everything's cool. The one culminating question that had just was exploded. One of the main leaders of the fellowship, who was obviously very upset about all this, and so then Jesus died and was raised from the dead three days later. What miracle did Baha'u'llah do? And then Jacob calmly leans forward in the chair. I have to do this because the motion is... He leans forward in the chair and with his hand has this point and says, the first thing that Satan asked Jesus to do in in the desert was to perform a miracle. And Christ said, if out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, your words are the same as his, so then how can you claim yourself to be any different? What does that verse mean? Well, Christ said in other verses, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miracle, but none will be given but the sign of Jonah. Many instances, as Christ point out, like, miracles are not sustenance. They're not spiritual sustenance. My word, as Christ would say, my word is sustenance. My word is the real food. Because, like, a miracle is something that only satiates the appetite of the people who are there to witness it was the end of my relationship with InterVarsity at that point. So that was a very interesting, exhilarating period Mm. of my faith. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your story. No, thanks for having me, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff Hajibande, a Baha'i who in high school became a born-again Christian and then ran into the Baha'i faith when in college. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light. Then they shall see the light. Laying down with the lamb. And all the nations. And all the nations. Oh, from the north, the south, the east, and the west. They'll be gathered around the throne. Oh, they'll see them marching. All together up the mountain. On the king's highway. To Zion. Just to behold.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.